Well, everybody loves a good story. Uh, You as Alaskans certainly know this, whether it's fishing stories, hunting stories, you love good stories. Uh, Maybe children, right, sitting on your parents' laps, grandparents' laps, hearing good stories. We all love good stories. I was reminded of that fact this week. My wife and I have the privilege of staying with Pastor Pete Johnson. And stories all week long. I think my wife and I have said about a combined 15 words this week. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know Pastor Pete, he loves stories and loves to tell stories about Alaska and his grandkids. But the point is, we, we like good stories, right? And uh, what makes a good story? Uh, some shocking elements, some twists and turns. Uh, it kind of captivates us, draws us in. Our Lord was a fan of stories as well, but he called them parables, or we call them parables. And this morning, we're going to turn to perhaps his most fa- famous parable, Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. If you haven't turned there already, please do so. Luke chapter 15. It's a story full of twists and turns and shocking elements. For this reason, this morning, your sermon title is A Shocking Story. A Shocking Story. And in this text, we'll see Jesus use his storytelling technique to reveal hearts. He reveals the repentant sinner's heart. He reveals God's heart towards that repentant sinner. And ultimately, he reveals the Pharisees and the scribes' hearts to themselves in this parable. And as we work our way through this text, we too can reflect upon our own hearts. Do we have the heart of the repentant sinner? And if we do, do we reflect God's heart toward sinners? I'll read this text in sections this morning as we work through it. Read with me, beginning in actually verse 1 of chapter 15, as I gather some of the context. Verse 1, chapter 15, the Gospel of Luke. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Here we have Luke's introduction to this most famous of Jesus' parables. A man who receives sinners, Jesus was. They practiced that he had become known for. You'll remember the story when he called Levi the tax collector. We know him as Matthew, right? He called him to himself, ultimately, in salvation, and what happened? He threw a party, and there were sinners gathered at this party, at this dinner in the tax collector's home, and Jesus was there, and this really aggravated the scribes and the Pharisees. They saw themselves as the religious elite of the day. The scribes were the top Bible teachers of the day, and many of the scribes were Pharisees. The Pharisees were the leading religious leaders of the day. And the Pharisees attempted, and the scribes attempted to follow God's law to a T, so much so that they added rules and regulations to God's law in order to protect them, so to speak, from actually getting even close to God's law. One of these extra rules was that they should not associate with the godless, which, of course, is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's associating with the godless. Now, of course, we understand that having extra rules and regulations to keep us from sin and temptation is certainly Fine, right? We put things on our phones to keep us from, from temptations uh, rising from our phone and, and giving in to those temptations, right? If you have children, you know this. You do these things. But what the Pharisees were doing, of course, was making that a requirement for every person, right? It would be Pharisaical for you to then say, oh, to somebody, you don't have this, you know, fill in the blank, uh, screen blocker, whatever, right, on your phone or on your kids' phones. How dare you? How could you do that? Right? I mean, that would be pharisaical, right? It's up to those parents, it's up to that family to add those extra things in order to help us follow 
God's law. But that's not what the Pharisees were doing. They were requiring these things of the people. And so you have these, right, these self-righteous Pharisees that are grumbling about Jesus receiving sinners. Now, I want you to notice that this parable in verse 3, uh, the, parable, the word parable is singular. And so we often think of these three parables in chapter 15, or I should say three parts of this parable in chapter 15 as different parables. But Luke introduces it to us here as one parable. And I want you to see two points here. Um, as we read these first two parts of the parable. First, I want you to see that the first two parts of the parable are salvation from God's perspective. Salvation from God's perspective. That's the, the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then as we read those two, I want you to also try to discern the theme of the parable. Jesus usually makes it pretty clear what the theme is. He'll put it towards the end of each section uh, in this case, or at the end of the parable. So read with me verses 3 through 10. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she lost one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, were you able to discern the, the theme here in these parts of the parable? We might say that the theme of chapter, or excuse me, chapter 15 of Luke is God's joy over the repentant sinner. The repentant sinner brings God much joy. So in response to these Pharisees and scribes grumbling about Jesus receiving sinners, Jesus' immediate response is to teach them that God is the one who seeks out and saves sinners and that it brings God much joy to do so when they turn to him. And then Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to give part three of this parable, which we will examine in detail, to develop this main point and apply it directly to his listeners, to the Pharisees and the scribes. So let's move to part three of this parable, salvation depicted from the sinner's perspective. I've labeled it a shocking story, a shocking story. Pick up with me in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. We might label these two or three verses a shocking request, a shocking request. To Jesus' listeners, the tax collectors, the Pharisees, the sinners, everybody sitting there listening, they would, have been, they would have recognized this as an absolutely outlandish request, a shocking request from any son, let alone the youngest son. First, this request is in direct opposition to the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. As a good Jewish father, he certainly would have had his sons memorize the Ten Commandments. They would have known. 
There would be no mistaking this son's rebellion towards his father. Essentially, right, he's asking, Father, I just wish you were dead because I want my inheritance now, right? He's not asking his father for, uh, you know, a slice of the, the family pie so that he can begin to build his own inheritance within the family and, and, and you know, bring his um, expertise uh, or learn uh, from the family wealth, right? The, the Greek here gathered all, to, or gathered all he had in verse 13 denotes that the son liquidated all the father gave him. He took all his father's possessions that he gave him and turned them into cash. You can think of taking it to like a pawn shop, right, if we contemporize it. He's not getting the best he can for these possessions, for the things his father gave him. He just wants the money so that he can go and spend it in a foreign country. Why? Why into a far foreign country? Because in that distant country, he's got no judgment. There's no judgment from the Jews, from his father, from his family. All the... No, none of the judgment and all of the fun, right? That's the lie that sin tells us. Now, to request this part of the inheritance is one thing, but to liquidate it and turn it into cash and run into another country is an entirely different thing. And while this is certainly shocking, a shocking request, it's even more shocking, the father's response. Those in the crowd listening to Jesus' parable would have expected the father, I don't know, to smack the son upside the head, make an example of him. Well, what are you thinking, son? You're essentially asking me to die so that you can have what I will leave you. But no, that's not what happens. Just as shocking as the son's request is the father's response. Sure, son, take the inheritance, turn it into cash, run into a foreign land with your friends and have yourself a grandiose time. I mean, come on, dad, what are you thinking? Are you serious? But it's right to pause at this point and ask ourselves, what is being taught, right? The the Pharisees are thinking this father's outside of his right mind. They're certainly indignant about the son's request, but even more so about the father's response. And so what are we being taught? That God often allows the sinner to go his own way for a time. I couldn't say it any better than MacArthur, so I quote him, that God shows extreme forbearance. He gives sinners freedom to pursue their own self-will, even though it is clear that their only intention is rebellion against his will. And he does so even though their rebellion seems for the moment to cause him great dishonor. We need to understand that the reaction of the son's father depicts the love of Yahweh for rebellious humanity. End quote. Now, don't misunderstand. The extent to which this son's request dishonors his father certainly does dishonor his father. But remember, and it dishonors God, but remember, God's creation has been sinning and rebelling against him since Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? It's not as if God is inactive and just allowing human and mankind to run rampant. No, God is patient. And he's actively holding back his full wrath and fury against those who have rebelled against them, patiently waiting for them to come to him. Romans 2.4, Or do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And sometimes that means that God allows sinners to go their own way and to live in the consequences of their sin for particular amount of time before graciously granting them spiritual life so that they then can 
see their sin, turn from that sin, and turn to Christ and have the ability to do all of those things, which, which is what we see next, picking up in verse 14. Read with me. And when he, he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired slaves or servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. We might label these verses a shocking realization, a shocking realization. The fact that this son heads into a foreign land and blows everything isn't really all that shocking, right? If Jesus had stopped as the son was going into the foreign land in this parable and asked, you know, the tax collectors, the sinners, the the Pharisees, whoever was standing by, you know, what do you think is going to happen next? I mean, they might have came to this conclusion. This isn't a shocking conclusion, By any means. It's no surprise when sinful, selfish desires drive this young man or man or any young man or woman to the depths of the consequences of their sin, right? We we know this. We face the consequences of our sin. Numbers 32, 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. And you know the biblical principle of Galatians 6, 7. Well, I'm sure whatever a man sows, this also he will weep. So soon after this young man spends all of his dad's money in this land, his situation goes from bad to worse. How does it go from bad to worse? The external circumstance of a famine. A famine is sent to the land. Now, the Pharisees sitting there to listening to Jesus' parable, they're thinking, yes, of course, God's justice has finally caught up with this young man, and he's being punished for what he is doing. This is exactly what he deserves. But they missed God's grace in this famine. The question is, who is it that controls famines and natural disasters? Ultimately, we know it's God. Psalm 147, 8. Who covers the heavens with clouds? Who provides rain for the earth? Who makes grass to grow on the mountains? The obvious answer is that Yahweh does. And these religious leaders, they should have seen God's grace in this situation, but they were so wrapped up in their self-righteous religion that they, they missed it. Think with me. The Jews knew the Old Testament, right? How was it that Abraham was driven to Egypt in Genesis 12, where God gave him great wealth through Pharaoh? He was driven there by a famine. Or the same is true for Isaac, Abraham's son, when he was driven to the land of the Philistines. Again, in that land, God gave that family great wealth. And what's most familiar to us, Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, his famine, or his family, same family, is driven to Egypt by what? A famine, where providentially the son, Joseph, is there ready to provide for them. God's grace in the situation. So the Pharisees, although they had a place for trials and famines in their theology, they didn't have a place for God's grace in these trials, at least not these Pharisees. And what did God's grace do for this young man in this famine? The text says, verse 17, that the young man came to the end of himself. Another way of translating that phrase 
is that the young man came to his senses. You see, this man had, if this man had lost all of his money in a properly working economy, he was a young man. He likely would have been able to pull himself up by his bootstraps, as we say, and make his way. But no, this is a land stricken by a famine, and he has to hire himself out to work with pigs. This is certainly no situation that a Jewish man wants to be in. Pigs were unclean animals to Jews. Listen to Leviticus eleven seven through 8, speaking or written to the Jewish man. The pig is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their carcass. They are unclean to you. No self-respecting Jew would have taken this job, willingly anyways. The crowd listening to Jesus and this parable would have been appalled. How is it that this man has been brought to this situation? But perhaps here is the, one of the best illustrations in the Bible of a man, of all men, right, dead in their sin, wallowing in the consequences of their sin. Scripture would label this man spiritually dead, spiritually dead, just as Ephesians 2 would. Turn to Ephesians 2 with me. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes for us where every man is before God. He calls him out of darkness and into light, right? God gives the sinner spiritual life. Read with me verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let me ask you, have you ever seen yourself as what this text describes, being spiritually dead, wallowing in your sin? Have you ever come to this realization that you are living for yourself and your selfish desires, right? You might not be the son who has liquidated his father's estate, but this is the sinful condition that every human being is born into. Psalm 51.5, Behold, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Each one of us has been or still are blind to our condition before God. Not only blind, Ephesians 2 says what? That we are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead until what? Until we do something? No. Look at Ephesians 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, just like this man in the text in Luke 15, God made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. This is what's happening in Luke 15 to the young man. God is graciously granting him spiritual life at his lowest point. He, for the first time, sees his sinful condition. He, for the first time, sees his utter filthiness before God. He's wallowing around in this pig pen, but his spiritual condition is far worse than his outward appearance. And although this sinful, or this young man's sinful decisions has brought him to this point, this is exactly where God wanted him to be. God sent this famine to bring this man to his senses. John Calvin and his commentary on the gospel says about verse 17, he says, Here is described to us a way in which God invites men to repentance. End quote. Ezekiel 36 describes it this way. 
God removes the heart of stone and gives man a heart of flesh. In theological lingo, we might call this the new birth or regeneration. It's the first thing that takes place in the order of salvation when it's applied to the sinner. God is the first one to act. Ephesians 2 doesn't say that man was dead in his sin, spiritually dead, and then he did something. No, it says then God did something. God made us alive. Until God acts upon a spiritually dead man's heart, man can do nothing, not even repent and believe. How do we know this? 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. He has been born of God, and then he believes. In other words, the new birth precedes believing, precedes faith. And in 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul says something along the same lines. God grants repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. In other words, God grants repentance. He grants the new birth, which then immediately lead to repentance and faith, repentance exercised by the sinner. In Luke 15, we saw in the first two parts of the parable what? God was seeking out the sinner, represented by the sheep and the coin. The sheep and the coin, they didn't know they were lost. They were essentially dead in their sin, metaphorically speaking. God is the one who pursues a lost, dead sinner, and he's always successful. Now, don't misunderstand, just because God is the one that pursues, and God grants faith and as a gift and grants repentance, this doesn't mean that God repents for you. It doesn't mean that he believes for you. No, he grants you the new birth, and these things come as a result of that, right? But you, the sinner, is the one who exercises that repentance and exercises that faith, which is exactly, again, what we see happening in this parable. Regeneration that then leads to a subsequently changed life. In this moment of new birth, this young man first sees himself as dead in his own sin, sin against not only his earthly father, but also his heavenly father. And this young man, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then resolves to turn from that life of sin that he had created for himself in a foreign land and return to his father's house. And in this young man's repentance, we see the correct attitude of repentance, do we not? God-granted repentance comes with humility, Humility. You'll notice that the son was not willing to return to his father's house as a son, was he? No, he humbles himself and says that he would go back as a hired servant. Now, a hired servant might not sound all that bad to us, but essentially this is a day laborer. And in that culture, it was better to be a slave than a, than a hired servant, a day laborer. Because as a, as a slave, you were part of the family. You were part of the household, right? You knew you had... Your housing, you had clothing, you had, uh, oftentimes the slaves had possession over their uh, master's possessions, right? Managed them for him. A hired servant didn't have all those things. He didn't know where his next paycheck was coming from. He resolves to come back as the lowest of flow. We see his humility. Essentially, he's displaying what we would see is that the second beatitude of a kingdom citizen, Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn. What are they mourning over? They're mourning over their sin, for they shall be comforted. Consider for a moment if there's a famine in your life or in the life of a loved one. Maybe God is using it to bring you or someone you know to the end of themselves. It could be an illness, the death of a loved one, a lost job, the list goes on. Perhaps it's God doing this to bring them to himself. 
And this is also true for the, for the believer, right? You know the book of Job and the fact that Job was a righteous man and then was stricken by severe famine. He was already a righteous man, but God still had lessons to teach him. Don't fight from this. Turn from your sin and turn to God. Next, this young man's shocking, or after this young man's shocking realization, we see that ultimately, being that being regeneration or the new birth as we spoke, we come to the next shocking part of this story. Read with me, picking up in verse 20, back in Luke 15. In the middle of verse 20, Luke writes what Jesus spoke, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and began to celebrate. In these verses, we see a shocking reconciliation, a shocking reconciliation. Now, in our fitness-obsessed world, old man running uh, really doesn't seem all that strange. But in this culture, in this day and age, it was extremely strange. Uh, A man of this status would not be running. The dress didn't allow it. The shoes didn't allow it. He was a man of dignity. He did not run. It was shocking, one might say. An evangelical scholar, Kenneth Bailey, notes about this translation within the Arabic Bibles, which is close to the same culture, right? Up until the 19th century, they refused to translate this phrase, him running, as anything that actually depicted him running. They would translate, he ran as he hurried or he presented himself, because they knew this was not what a man of this dignity, of this status, would do even though that's exactly what the Greek word depicts, right? I mean, in you know, extra-biblical Greek, it's, depicts, it's used for men sprinting. So we could even say that this father was sprinting to his son. And, and why? Why is he, he sprinting to his son? The father was so overcome with joy that it caused him to throw out all social norms of the day, forget who he was, forget his status, because he was running to this son that was coming home because of the joy that filled his heart. And the text says that he embraces him. He puts his arms around his neck. He kisses him repeatedly. But before the, the father runs to this son, the text reads that the son was a long way off. A long way off. The Greek word translated a long way off here, and this is fantastic, is the same word translated earlier in this passage, in verse 13, a far country. A far country. And this denotes that the father not only saw his son from a great distance and ran to him, but that he was anticipating that son coming back when he was in that far off country, far before that son ever resolved to come home. Is it not the same with our Heavenly Father? He is waiting with open arms for his children to come to him, regardless if they have resolved yet. To come to him. He waits patiently for them to return. What drove this father's reaction to his son? We've said it was joy, 
But verse 20 also says that he felt compassion for him. This literally speaks of the bowels or the guts of somebody, right? You know the feeling when you get excited or you get nervous. You can feel it in your stomach. That's what this father is feeling. One commentator says that it's an ancient way of referring to what rises up from one's innermost core. And what rose up from this father's innermost core, it was joy. The dad is so overjoyed, he throws out those social norms, so overjoyed that he starts a party to restore this son. So much joy that the son doesn't even get to finish his prepared speech. Did you see that? He never gets to the part about being a hired servant. The father cuts him off. Instant forgiveness. Just like our heavenly father. In the middle of his confession, the father cuts him off and calls to one of his slaves, robe, ring, sandals, fattened calf, quickly, the guests, they're on their way. The father is ecstatic over this repentant son. Nothing could bring him more joy. God has the same joy. Jesus has the same joy over the repentant sinner. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what these gifts represent, but overall, they just represent that the son has been restored to the family. But it is interesting to know that the robe was likely the robe that was worn by the patriarch. So at a party of this side, the robe would have been worn by the father, the patriarch of the family, so that everyone knew who was the guest of honor. The ring would have been the signet ring, most likely, the father's signet ring, showing that not only was the son restored to the family, but he was restored as a son with the same authority that he had before And the fattened calf, scholars estimate, could feed up to 200-plus people. The whole village, the whole town was invited to restore this son to the family. But here the the father is so overjoyed with all these gifts. By the way, those gifts likely would have all gone to the older son at the father's passing. Well, we know they would have because they were inherited. Or at the, the older son's wedding. But he's so overjoyed that he gives them all to the younger son. A shocking reconciliation for sure. The Pharisees and scribes sitting there listening to the parable, remember the context, would have been disgusted by this. By the younger son's request, by the father's initial response, and then by this reception of the father of the younger son. Yes, the Pharisees and scribes would have recognized that this younger son would have had to confess his sins and repent and all of those things, but they would have never allowed in their system for him to be restored to this place of honor, right? They believe that, in a sense, that repentance and confession was something that, you know, brought God's uh, favor on them instead of uh, something that God did within the sinner's heart. They taught that not only was the blood of bulls and goats required for atonement, as did the Old Testament, but also a lifetime of good works, So they would have expected this father to receive his son back, no doubt. But he would have had to atone for what he had done. There was no way he would have been restored to a place of honor in their legalistic system. Be sure that legalism or any false system, any and every false system or religion, they all incorporate works into salvation. They hate grace. MacArthur is again helpful. He says, Pharisees. They had no category for their theology, in their theology for showing grace to the sinner, end quote. Their system, they wouldn't allow it. They wouldn't allow them not having a part of their salvation, a part, uh, them having a part of earning their righteousness before God. But God, or Jesus, squashes their theology. And the father's forgiveness to his son is instant. 
the moment God grants repentance, the moment that God gives the, the new birth, and we exercise repentance and faith, instant forgiveness. Instant forgiveness. In that moment, we receive Christ's righteous robe, that robe that he earned as a man. He came to earth to be a man and live the perfect sinless life, never once breaking God's law. When we exercise faith and repentance, we receive that and our sins, our dirty robe goes to him on the cross and he pays for those sins. Now, I mean, of course, as a Christian, right, we still sin. It's not that you don't, you stop sinning. You need to live a life of continued repentance and confession, but you're now part of God's family. He has adopted you as a son or daughter and has brought you into his household, so to speak. It's like Romans 8.1 says, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just like this younger son. He's received in, there's no longer any condemnation. Paul goes on in Romans 8 to say in verses 38 and 39, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is this not humbling? Knowing that if it was up to us, ultimately, we would lose our salvation every day. But Christ, God, holds us fast. And we are kept safe in his house. And this this brings God, this brings Jesus and the Holy Spirit so much joy to give sinners spiritual life, to reconcile them to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So much joy that sinners who deserve eternal death and torture in the lake of fire, instead, they receive an inheritance from their heavenly Father. Think of the greatest inheritance you could ever imagine. Earthly inheritance. The greatest inheritance. All the money that you could spend in the world. You couldn't even spend it, right? Elon Musk, he's your father. He gives it all to you. This pales in comparison to what you receive from Jesus Christ. First Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is what happens to our young man in the parable. Peter goes on to say, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The signet ring, the robe, the sandals, the fattened calf, the party, they're all nice gestures from an earthly father, extravagant gestures, we might say, but still they compare, pale in comparison to what we receive from God through Jesus Christ. God lavishly, puts Christ, what Christ has earned, to our account. And one day we will fully understand and live in that manifestation of that inheritance. It's ours now, to be sure, but it will fully manifest itself in the future. But does everyone celebrate over this confession, this repentance, this son coming home? Unfortunately not. Continue reading with me in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the, the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home, your father. He has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But 
He, that is the older son, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother. For your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You can imagine the older son, older brother coming out of the field, sweat-stained clothing, coming up to the house, seeing the commotion, wondering what's going on, his immediate interest, music. What, what is happening One of the servants comes to him and tells him, your younger brother, he's back. He's not dead like we thought, he's alive. We might expect that older brother to be excited. He's not, right? His fists clench, perhaps. Neck on his hair raises, or the the hair on his neck raises. Blood rushes to his face. He's angry. And he, re- he refuses to enter into this celebration. Again, remember the context. The Pharisees and scribes listening to Jesus' parable might be thinking, yes, finally, someone who has some sense in this family, someone who cares about justice around here, someone who recognizes that this younger son is not getting what he deserves. But is that not the point? God doesn't give the repentant sinner what they deserve. They deserve eternal death and eternal punishment in hell. Every single one of us does. But instead, God gives the repentant sinner the complete opposite of what he deserves. That's God's grace because God is overjoyed at the repentant sinner coming to him and trusting in his way of salvation through his son. Now, it's probably about this time that the Pharisees are beginning to gather about what Jesus is doing starting to put the picture or the pieces together of this picture and realizing it's a picture of them. Look back again at Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him, or eats with them. Just like this older brother is angry with the father in the story or the parable, so too the Pharisees are angry at with Jesus for receiving repentant sinners and tax collectors and celebrating with them. But that's not the only thing this older brother and these religious leaders have in common, is it? Did you see in verse 29, the older brother's self-righteousness? Look, these many years I have served you, he says. More literally, we could render that, I am being your slave. But not only have I been your slave, says the older brother, but goes on to say, I've never disobeyed your command. Never disobeyed your command. And can you see the self-righteousness? Certainly, he's not perfect. Never disobeyed your command. How self-righteous is he? And he sees his labor to his father not as a labor of love. He doesn't love his father. He sees it as slave labor. Ultimately, he wants the same thing as the younger son, the inheritance. He just chose a different way to get there. He's just waiting for his father's death instead of outrightly saying, give me my inheritance Now, Daryl Bach notes the spatial irony that Jesus paints 
in this parable. He says, quote, the one who was an outsider, that was the son who went into the country, is now an insider at the party. And now the one who appeared to be an insider, that is the older son, is now complaining outside the party and refusing to go in. But the younger son felt fortunate to become a mere slave the older brother has resented all along. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that you can have the appearance of being part of God's family on the outside, but in reality, on the inside, your heart is far from him. Or to contemporize that, you could come to church week in and week out and have the outward appearance that you're a Christian and you believe these things, but on the inside, your heart is still far from God and you still serve yourself and your desires instead of Christ. One Bible commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, says, Some sinners smell of the hog pen, while others reek of the church pew. Yet again, we have a surprising response from the Father, do we not? At this point, the perceptive Pharisees and scribes, they realize that they're the ones that represent the uh, older son in the parable. And we might think that this father is now going to rebuke his son. We might think Jesus is going to rebuke these Pharisees. But we see the compassionate heart of Jesus. Dane Ortland says that Jesus is not trigger-happy. He's not harsh or reactionary or easily exasperated. Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe. The father in the parable replies to this older son. He calls him son. Literally, he calls him child. A very tender response. The father's reply is as gentle as the son's complaint was harsh. In this parable, we have perhaps Jesus' softest response to the Pharisees in the Gospels. You see, The Pharisees and scribes, they were part of God's family according to the flesh, outward, right? We said if they were here today, they'd be sitting in the chairs next to you. But Romans, Paul makes clear, Romans 9, 4, speaking of the Jews, he says, to them belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises. Paul is essentially saying the Jews, they had all the privileges they could want. They were God's chosen people but they failed to recognize that they needed a savior because they were blind and self-righteous. They failed to recognize that Jesus was their Messiah. That's why Paul says in Romans 9, 6, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Why? Because Israel, by and large, we know this, rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They refused to repent and believe. But in this parable, the father is graciously imploring his older son to enter into his celebration. Repent of your sins, acknowledge your self-righteousness, just like your younger son has acknowledged his sins, and come into my joy, into my celebration. Although the Pharisees and the scribes had never left the family farm, so to speak, they were likewise dead in their sin, just like this older brother. But the question is, will they turn to Jesus? Will they... Will they exercise faith? Will they trust in him? Will they see their self-righteousness? Which brings us to our fifth and final point this morning. A shocking resolution. A shocking resolution. Now we're out of verses. But Luke has brought us to the end of this story, sitting on the end of our seat, right? The edge of our seat. We're, We're ready for that older brother's response. Is he going to enter the celebration? How about the Pharisees? Are they going to enter the celebration? Are they going to turn from their self-righteousness into Jesus? But Jesus ends his parable here. 
And we're left to wonder how the older brother responds. We're left to wonder how the Pharisees respond. Luke doesn't record it. As the reader, we don't know. Now we know the character of our God, and I would have no problem saying that maybe a few Pharisees or scribes came to God that day, came to Jesus that day, and turned from their self-righteousness. But by and large, we know that they didn't, that Israel did not turn from their self-righteousness. Instead, they nailed their Messiah to a cross. And the greatest sin that mankind has ever known, the killing of the God-man, Jesus Christ, brought about the greatest good mankind has ever known. In God's providence, they killed Jesus, his son, so that all who believed upon him would have eternal life. Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which... We must be saved. The shocking end of Jesus' parable is meant to provoke in us self-reflection, just as it was for the Pharisees and scribes who stood there listening. Ask yourself, is there any sense that you are trusting in yourself or your self-righteousness for salvation? If there is, turn from that. Jesus has paved the way. It is his righteousness alone that is given to us through faith. Or perhaps you are still the younger brother in that far-off country. You might not have liquidated the cash and ran away, but your heart has. It's far from Christ. If you're either of those, you must turn from your sin. You must turn to Christ. For him, he is the only way of salvation. And just like this younger son received instant forgiveness, so will you from your heavenly father. You'll receive Christ's righteous robes, and he'll take your sin, which he has paid for on the cross. And then, and only then, will you be able to take up your cross daily and serve him as a faithful slave, even though he treats you like a younger brother or sister. This is the grace of our great God, is it not? Grace represented in this parable. And make no mistake, as we talked about a lot about the sons, right, the, the main character of this parable is certainly Jesus or God. Don't harden your hearts against him. If he's calling you today to turn from your sins and repent, do so. And for the believer out there, I think there's some serious application about forgiveness in this parable. If you already have that heart and have been given that heart of the repentant sinner and you've turned from your sin and turned to believe and trust in Christ alone for salvation, do you have a forgiving heart like the Father? Or do you harbor hardness against your brothers and sisters in Christ? There is some confusion and talk about different ways of forgiveness. But ultimately, right, we see this father, when, he, when that son was still in a far-off country, we see that father and his forgiving heart long before the son ever decided to come home. And so we would expect, right, if a brother or sister in Christ has sinned against us, we would expect their repentance, and they should, if they should repent. But we should have that forgiving heart long before they ever come to that realization that they need to repent. If it's the unbeliever, recognize that if God hasn't given them the heart to repent and see their sin, why do you expect them to repent of the sin against you? Have the Father's forgiving heart. And if you don't know Christ, then today is the day of salvation. Just like he called to the Pharisees and the scribes to turn from their sin, and just like we saw this younger brother ultimately turn from his sin, he calls you to do the same and trust in him alone for salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this most magnificent story. Uh, Your love is truly uh, indomitable and and, and knows no bounds. 
to the out, to the the most outward sinner or to that sinner who is just reeling in his sin in his own heart, Lord, you call them all, and you're faithful to save them all who turn to you and trust in you alone for salvation. Father, for those of us who are your children, we pray that this time you would use for our sanctification and our edification, that we would turn to you and live a life of humility, of sin, and or of returning from sin and turning to your Son, Lord, that we would trust in him not only for our salvation, but for our daily strength. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.